Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including our reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I am Kaiser Guo, coming today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Isabella Weber, who is Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Isabella is the author of a truly important new book that is certainly one of the most talked about China-related books of recent months, How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Now, before I welcome her, let me say a few words in praise of the book just to whet your appetites. And make you go out and buy the thing because it's just so great. I have read God knows how many dissertations that have been turned into books, but this one is up there among the most singularly impressive, uh, not just for its contributions to our understanding of what is inarguably an incredibly pivotal period in China's history, uh, but also for just for posing and for answering a question of just such great import. Uh, but it's also impressive just for marshalling such an oceanic volume of research uh, with so many detailed interviews. I counted a total of 51 individuals, many of them multi multiple, you know, interviews with, with the same individuals, uh, plus a vast bibliography of primary source materials. Uh, and all, of course, the economic data that you would expect from such a study. But this is clearly the product of many, many years of very intensive study and, and work. Another thing that I think makes the book worthwhile, even to the non-specialist, is the way Isabella brings to bear ideas uh, from the past, uh, from China's pre-imperial past, from its imperial past. Uh, and often I find that to be a gimmick and it doesn't work. But in this case, you will find this indisputably relevant. I mean, it's, it's really very compelling. And of course, she manages to build in a ton of, of narrative tension and real drama into this as the two sides in this consequential debate just, you know, marshal their forces and engage uh, one another. It makes the whole thing very readable. It's, it's a meticulous anatomy of this decision. And I'm not going to kid you here. It's extremely complex uh, with all sorts of different research institutes, economists of all different nationalities, uh, very different theoretical orientations, and, of course, many Chinese economists and officials, many of whose names our listeners are actually going to recognize, you know, from later on in their careers when they are, you know, at the controls, when they have their hands on the levers of economic power in China, um, and I have to confess that that this aspect of it makes it you know fun reading for the uh, the unalloyed China nerds like me. Um, crucially, the book makes a very vital contribution to our understanding of the events uh, of April through June of '89. You know, the year leading up uh, this period of of high inflation uh, in 1988. So I think by examining the causes of that inflation and the austerity measures that were implemented later that year, um, it it really helps us deepen our understanding of what caused uh, the, the student-led protests that followed Huiabang's death on April 15th, you know, leading up to, of course, the uh, horrific spasm of violence in the wee hours of June 4th. So the book leaves the reader with uh, a lot of questions, uh, I think, about 
how relevant some of these same modes of thinking that were in contention back then remain very much live issues today when we look at the Chinese economy and uh, the role of the state in the Chinese economy. Uh, these questions aren't just relevant as we think about China either. I mean, I think it's as we, you know, we reckon with what has come of this faith, I think that so many people around the world placed or misplaced uh, in the last several decades in classical, you know, liberal economic theory, neoliberalism, if you will. Uh, I will ask about all this and more with today's guest, Isabella Weber. Isabella, congratulations on the publication of this fantastic book and on the warm reception that it has received. And, and welcome, of course, to Seneca. Thank you so much for having me, Kaiser. It's very humbling to hear you talk about my work in that way. Thank you. Oh, uh, it's in, you'll see. I mean, people who read it will will find that I probably understate it. Uh, well, let's start, Isabel, with a, with a very simple question and a big one. What is shock therapy, and who were the economists behind the idea of shock therapy? Yeah, so shock therapy really is a policy package that, in its most standard articulation, was composed of four elements. That is, price liberalization that was meant to be as fast as possible, aided by macroeconomic austerity, that is tight monetary policy and fiscal restraint, and then followed up with trade liberalization and privatization. Even the most hardcore shock therapists admitted that privatization was a long and complicated process, especially given the tremendous dimensions of this task in a socialist economy, where basically all of the economy was run under public ownership before reform. So the shocking element in shock therapy was really the big bang in price liberalization that was the setting free of prices more or less overnight. That was a paradigm that was based on the premise that short-term pain was necessary in order to achieve long-term gain. It was very much acknowledged that this initial shock as the idea of shock therapy, of course, imported from psychology and psychiatric treatments, implies that this initial shock would be painful. But the idea was that this would be necessary in order to lay the foundations for a future better system. Now, broadly speaking, the intellectual foundations of this logic, I think, can be found in the ideas of monetarism, Milton Friedman, and so on. Right. Um, the Chicago School. Yeah, Chicago School. And then, of course, most prominently in the, um, in the actual transition context of, of, of Russia and Eastern Europe, Jeffrey Sachs and, and others. However, Jeffrey Sachs himself, of course, was not involved in China, but that same logic was around long before Jeffrey Sachs and, in fact, was already promoted by Milton Friedman in Chile and in, in the UK. Right, right. Where prior to the 80s had it been tried? You said Chile and uh, the UK, Bolivia also. I mean, what, but what, what I'm curious is what was the source of confidence of so many Western economists when it came to shock therapy? You know, were they able to point to examples of command economies that had made the leap successfully because of sudden price liberalization or later on privatization or trade liberalization? So was this grounded mostly in the experience of transitioning these wartime command economies back to market economies like, you know, the United States or, or, or Germany? Um, and was this a good basis of comparison for China? Yeah, so I think the West German case actually um, was really important and was one that was repeatedly invoked, um, not only by Milton Friedman, but later on also by Helmut Kohl in the um, German context, Weizerowicz in the Polish context and so on, where basically the idea was that West Germany had transitioned after 
the war command economy into a market miracle, more or less overnight, through Ludwig Erhard's price liberalizations that happened in one big go in that in that narration. Is this a good point of comparison for the transition from socialism? I think this is questionable. I think a key difference between the West German case and, say, the Chinese case in the 1980s was that Yes, of course, under fascism, the economy had been organized in a very different form. However, big industrial companies had continued to operate as capitalist companies, profit-oriented right. capitalist players. So the backbone of the economy, even though it was organized through commands during the war, nevertheless had a very recent institutional and personal link back to straight-out capitalist and market practices, which was, of course, not the case for socialist production units um, in China or elsewhere at the dawn of reform. And so I'm curious how the advocates squared this. How I mean, surely they were aware of of this this difference that China had no antecedent, recent antecedent um, experience of of uh, uh, an industrialized market economy. Anyway, yeah. So um, in mainstream textbook economics, uh, there's relatively little consideration of institutions and the nature of institutions. So therefore, um, it's really all about getting prices right. So this um, focus on getting prices right. Um, it's quite consistent with the idea that liberalizing prices overnight and thereby letting them free, thereby letting them um, become right by themselves, um, would be <laughs> sufficient to create a functioning market economy. Um, so that's, it, I think, this rather idealist and on some level probably quite unrealistic interpretation of the Erhard reforms is grounded in a deeper theoretical logic. And that's a consistent theme throughout your book is just this sort of contrast between the sort of purely theoretical and then, you know, looking at the actual implementation. Uh, I mean, it's it's not maybe as, as stark and binary as I've just suggested, but uh, that that is the theme. You know, there's another book that I read fairly recently uh, that looks at a lot of the same period, a lot of the same debates, um, and it's written by, of course, Julian Gewertz, and it was a, a book that you actually did review. Um, he looks at the same, you know, the, the debates within the Chinese leadership. He seems to emphasize what China did learn, uh, how much was actually cribbed from the experiences of Eastern European countries as well as uh, Western economists, uh, where my sense is that, you know, you are arguing a little bit more about how Chinese economists did internalize some of these 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 ideas. They also discarded others. They forged their own path. Um, is that a fair characterization of the difference between the the two books? Uh, there are many, but um, and it's really interesting to, to sort of see this from multiple perspectives. But uh, would you would you think that's a fair characterization of the difference between you, your book and Julian Gwertz's book? Yeah, I mean, I guess two points. One point is, of course, Julian's book is an incredibly important contribution and has restarted the For debate sure. on yeah. the 80s. At the same time, I think based on the interviews that I've done and the research I've, I've done in China, his account of one side in the debate is incredibly detailed and incredibly useful. His account of the other side in the debate is... Uh, very, very limited. So I think what I'm bringing um, to our understanding of the 80s is to foreground the tension within the reform camp and to um, right. foreground the massive confrontations amongst people who were all dedicated to the idea of marketization. Secondly, I just want to make sure that my aim with this book is not to pitch Western economists against Chinese reformers, but rather my aim is to show that different kinds of ways of 
thinking about economics and doing economics have been present both in the West and in China and within the Chinese um, reform debate of the 1980s. I think the dividing line is not really between people who are interested in the West and people who want to find Chinese roots or some, some, some such thing. Rather, I think the dividing line is between different logics of economic reform, and there are Westerners and Chinese on both sides of this divide. So, Isabella, we were, t- we were talking the other day ahead of this interview, and uh, you shared with me uh, some interesting reactions from some of the uh, the other economists in the field. Some of them talked about how they had, I, mean, I don't know if we want to name names, but uh, how they had been puzzled by the, uh, the vehemence of debates among these people who were all ostensibly reformers. Like, you know, why are they arguing with each other so much? And it, it's it's interesting that they, some people sort of have privately confessed to you that they didn't pick up on the, the significant differences within the reform camp. And uh, that's what your book really does, is it just sort of brings those out into the open. Could, could you talk a little bit about that, about um, the state of it? I, I think maybe one, one way to put this would be, Isabella, was there a conventional wisdom about China's economic reforms that you were seeking to displace or to force a reconsideration of when you, when you began your work? Yeah, um, I think that very broadly speaking, a lot of the thinking about the 1980s has been framed in terms of the transition from socialism to capitalism and in terms of a struggle between conservatives and reformers. Now, of course, there was a transition from socialism to capitalism and there was a struggle between reformers and conservatives. If you want to label them conservatives, I'm, I'm not entirely satisfied with that label for the Chinese context. But anyways, let's just stick with this for simplicity. However, I think what I'm trying to show in the book is that beneath this big binary, there was a struggle within the market reform camp that might be just as consequential, because if we look at the different outcomes of transition across countries, um, we find that the ways in which countries have transitioned to the market actually matters. So it's not just market yes or no, but it's how to transition towards markets that can make a huge difference in terms of the outcomes. Right. Now, within China, as it so happens, in the 80s, those who were arguing against shock therapy actually ended up losing out in 89. So in the 90s and in, in the ways in which this history has been written, their side generally has been not portrayed as prominently as I think it should have been. Um, at the same time, for those who stood at the more radical side of market reforms, it was, of course, also quite convenient to own the 1980s and to, to own the legacy of successful reforms. So therefore, this very severe split of the 1980s, I think, has been studied much less um, than its importance would imply. I think a lot of people would recognize some irony in, in the fact that the people who were championing more radical economic reforms were the winners after 89. They emerged on top, uh, whereas the putative conservatives, you know, the people who, well, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't call them conservatives. I, I wouldn't use that label, but people who wanted to, you know, uh, you use this great metaphor, sort of this Jenga metaphor, right? Who, who didn't want to th- tear down the edifice and build it anew, but rather to pull out the pieces that could be pulled out and, and stack them on top and sort of grow uh, the new system from the old rather than destroying the old system. How it is that, that these most radical reformers, the ones who you would think would be more aligned with the, the political liberalizers, 
we're actually the ones who emerged on top. And we'll get to, to 89, but I think that that's a, a good foretaste of that. You know, you use the word escaped in the title of your book, How China Escaped Shock Therapy. Uh, it's a normative word. There's implications in there, of course, that, you know, shock therapy would have been bad. And I think you make the case well that, you know, there are many examples of failed shock therapy uh, that are, are meaningful comparisons with China. But some of them happen afterward, you know. You have... Uh, post-Soviet Europe, mostly um, post-Soviet Eastern Europe. Uh, so, you know, perestroika, which began contemporaneously with the debates that you you detail, uh, wasn't shock therapy. You know, it was sort of more of a gradualism. But, you know, Russia escaped shock therapy too, at least for a while until 91. Can you talk about your choice of this word escape? Yeah, um, before I get into that, I, I would like to expand on the Jenga metaphor a little bit, if, if you don't oh, mind. Oh, sure, sure. Um, so just to be sure, on my mind, there basically are three camps in the 1980s. There are those people who predominantly want to preserve the Jenga tower in its current form, not manifest it and freeze it, but preserve it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Then there are people who think you need to basically tear down the whole Jenga tower and um, have the market emerge like Phoenix from the ashes um, out of this torn down old building. And then in the middle, there are people who think that you should play the game of Jenga as you are playing the game of Jenga, that is removing the stones or sticks or blocks or whatever you want to call them um, <laughs> that are loosest first and then move them on top and thereby change the structure of the Jenga tower. Now, of course, as we all know, if we play the game of Jenga, eventually the tower will collapse. So the idea is not to leave the spots that where something has been removed empty, but rather that in these empty spots, a new dynamic, namely the market dynamic, will emerge and therefore re-stabilize the tower, but also create an entirely new system that is um, based on, on a different kind of logic. Right. Now, to your question on escape and shock therapy. So in the title, basically, there are two terms that need um, explanation, right? We have already talked about um, shock therapy. I've used shock therapy as a reference, even though in the 1980s, the term shock therapy was not yet um, dominant or, or prominent in China's own debates. They, they call it peitao, right? Peitao gaige, right? Yes. So package reform, the idea of creating a blueprint for reform and then implementing that blueprint um, in, in a more or less planned fashion and as fast as possible. Now, in the interviews that I've led, many people have attributed this this, this, the idea of a package reform um, to shock therapy. So there is a link from the perspective of those who were involved retrospectively. Sure. But I think there's also a very clear logical link where the kind of policy measures that were being debated basically followed the same kind of economics and the same kind of logic as shock th therapy as it was implemented in other um, socialist um, countries shortly after. In particular, the book is really focused on price reform and the question of whether or not to implement a big bang in price reform, which as I've tried to explain in my um, first answer to the question of what is shock therapy, was thought of as a critical first shocking element in shock therapy that would um, shock an old undesirable system into a new kind of system, a market system, a market equilibrium. 
Now, to the question of escape. Well, it is, of course, a question of debate whether in the 1980s shock therapy or, to be more precise, a big bang in price reform would have been problematic for the the further um, success of reform. And on some level, by using escape in the title, I, of course, imply that um, implementing shock therapy in the 1980s, or to be more precise, implementing a big bang in the 1980s, would have had negative economic consequences or would have been likely to produce negative economic outcomes, and in particular, um, to probably have resulted in quite rapid inflation that would have had the potential to undermine um, the reform project. Right. On some sense, I think that the events of 1988 and 1989 um, provide some um, proof in that direction. But more fundamentally, it seems to me that most cases that we can study where such rapid price liberalizations were implemented, the outcomes were quite negative. And in fact, this even applies to the West German case that has been heralded by the shock therapists as this miraculous instantaneous success of the creation of a free market economy. But if you read the German language um, economic history literature on Erhard's price liberalizations, you will find that they, first of all, did not include some some key prices in production consumption. Secondly, that they were followed by a pretty high inflation. And thirdly, that they did unleash uh, such wide-ranging social protests that a first general strike happened that was really a general strike against the reinstatement of a market economy in West Germany. So, That is to say that far from being an instantaneous miracle or a smooth sale, even the example that is most widely cited as the anecdotal proof for the possibility of creating a successful market economy overnight actually was a pretty bumpy. The Chinese actually pick up on this later. I mean, when they reevaluate, you know, the Earhart miracle uh, and, you know, and just sort of in the nick of time too, uh, to to head off package reforms in, in, in 1986. So, you know, what I want to do is, Isabella, is I want to dive into some of this really fascinating discussion that you open your book with about history. I'm going back quite far. I think a lot of readers would be very surprised that the first full chapter of your book uh, starts with a discussion of the Guanzi, which is, you know, a warring states era text. Uh, there wasn't probably an individual called Guanzi. You know, he's like a confabulation like so many of the other ones are, Laozi and so forth. But and of the debates on salt and iron during the Han Dynasty, during the Western Han, uh, my sense was that uh, these are included to suggest that in the Chinese context, the idea that the state not only you know has an important and ethically justifiable role to play in the regulation of prices through you know buying grain, say in the fall, and providing grain in the spring to try to counteract you know your your seasonality in grain prices, just that's di- dictated by the planting and harvesting cycle. Uh, it, it 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 also has a ben, an economically beneficial role to play. It's not just an ethical one, but an economically beneficial one. I I wonder though whether there was anything that you came across that by way of explicit reference to to the Guanzi or to the discourses on salt and iron or the ever normal granaries or any of these other institutions, or was it? Are you suggesting something that was more subconscious? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so. 
why I started to try to understand traditions in China's statecraft of regulating prices and um, thinking and practicing the relationship between states and markets was prompted by the interviews where people were telling me that when they were thinking about reform in the early 80s, they also engaged in civil what they called civilizational studies and um, the attempt hmm. to try to understand what China was in the 1980s in relation to its long history. Now, this is not trying to argue um, for some sort of eternal confusion wisdom that um, has predetermined uh, Chinese fate. In fact, uh, quite to the contrary, um, by foregrounding debate and by foregrounding that the 1980s um, was a moment of genuine openness where things could have gone otherwise. I'm trying to counter such a reading. However, at the same time, I think it's important um, to acknowledge that thinking and theorizing markets was not something alien to China or something that China had to, in its entirety, import from Western economics or Western um, traditions of the history of economic thought of thinking about um, prices and markets. So in that context, I found it important to um, relate the 1980s to China's own recurring controversies over the relationship between um, states and markets, and thereby emphasizing that within China's own history, there has been repeated struggles over this question. So there's no, no such thing as a monolithic Chinese tradition that then is being revived in the 80s. Right. But at the same time, the debate in the 1980s is in some sense a debate that, that happens in a very long sequence of, of, yes. of redefinitions of, of relations between state and market. In terms of a more direct link, I think um, the revolutionary struggle and the, the immediate post-liberation um, years are very important. In my interviews with World Bank officials and also in the notes of World Bank officials, they actually brought that up. And in one of the minutes on, on an extended conversation between the World Bank mission and high-ranking Chinese economists, one of the World Bank officials notes, why do the Chinese respond to every question about market reform that we have to go back to the post-liberation techniques. So there was this very clear reference that was brought to the World Bank to the experience of the immediate post-revolutionary years. Right. Now, during the 1940s and immediately after the revolution, one of the biggest challenges in the economic sphere that China faced was, of course, hyperinflation. And that That's hyper right. Inflation was to some extent an expression of the disintegration of the national economy itself. So farmers or peasants or whatever you want to call them were reverting to um, subsistence production, were in some sense withdrawing from the previously more integrated national economy so that the communists managed not least to stabilize prices in, in, in the base areas by um, recreating commercial links, especially for essential goods such as salt, grain, iron, and so on, um, and thereby stabilizing the value of money by making sure that money could buy essential goods. Now, this logic of seeing the value of money in terms of the value of essential goods, I think is one that is really quite prevalent in, in, in the Guanzi and is quite prevalent in, in Chinese statecraft um, thinking, but is also inherent in the institution of the Evernormal Granary that, of course, has a very, very long institutional 
history, where the idea of the granaries is that since the agricultural cycle produces inherently unstable prices, where prices during harvest and fall would be low because the market is suddenly flooded with grain, but then prices would be rising until um, the moment just before harvest, so that if you leave the market to be a free, unregulated market, what you would get is inherent price cycles and private merchants that um, exploit these um, price fluctuations and therefore, therefore um, benefit um, at the expense both of the peasants and the urban population. Right. Now, what the public granaries did was that they basically added to demand in fall and added to supply um, before harvest and thereby um, stabilized the supply-demand relationship over the agricultural cycle, and thereby um, stabilized prices, thereby stabilized the relationship between the countryside and um, the urban centers, and thereby ultimately also stabilized um, the value of money. So the value of money is thought of in terms of... How much grain you can buy. <laughs> yeah, and that same right. logic of stabilizing the value of money by making sure that money can buy grain and salt and iron and other essential goods for consumption and production, um, I think um, is clearly in operation in the economic warfare practices of the 1940s. And in fact, someone like Xu Mutiao would have done extensive research on the history of um, agriculture um, in, in, that, in that period, but going back centuries. So clearly they were aware of these practices of the ever-normal granary. I mean, I think there can be little... little oh, for sure, for sure. They, they also seem to be aware of this Guanzian principle of this, you know, controlling the heavy or essential and letting go of the light, the zhong and the qing, um, which is, you know, a kind of uh, yin-yang dualist idea, but it has an obvious, you know, a a economic manifestation, which is, you know, what is heavy are essentials. I mean, things that you've already talked about. But uh, in, in the modern context, those would be producer goods, right? I mean, we're talking about uh, raw materials inputs. You know, we're talking about fuel and we're talking about uh, iron and, and other metals, coking coal and things like that. So that, that, But that idea does seem to have been explicitly invoked. I mean, I see it, you know, the heavy and the light. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thinking in terms of heavy and light and thinking in terms of the relational importance, I think is something that we can observe throughout the 80s um, reform debates and that we can in some sense observe in Chinese economic policymaking until today, where I think it's important to recognize that heavy and light is not static. It's not like one thing is always heavy or always light. If you have a sequence of bumper harvests and you are completely flooded with grain, then grain might actually, even though it is one of the most essential consumption goods, might actually become much light. lighter than it right. would be if you have a bad harvest. Similarly, if you think about this in terms of the reform period, the most important large-scale steel factories would be absolutely heavy, right? Your right. small village furnace that might never have produced efficiently and that always only produced for one very local market, um, very poor quality steel, <laughs> is not essential for the working of the system as a whole, right? So even right. within one good, there can be, and at one moment in time, 
they can be things that can be heavy or light, depending on who is producing them, under what conditions, for whom, for which market, and so on. And I think this does give us um, a lens of thinking about economic relations that is quite different and that is in some sense quite timely since in the context of COVID we suddenly all ask ourselves what is essential um, which is yeah, basically yeah, the question yeah. of what is heavy right what is heavy exactly right. I have to say I mean the, the, the whole debate on say on, on iron and salt after the death of Hamoudi uh, you know who, who reigned in the second century BC uh, it has kind of irresistible parallels to the very period that you're studying. I mean, down to the way that the factions formed. I mean, on the one hand, like you have these counterparts to the, the, um, you know, to the intellectuals of the eighties back in, in the second century BC with these literati who were the ones who were, who were kind of championing the neoliberal position, uh, you know, f- kind of arguing against the more statists, uh, you know, the merchant bureaucrats and people like, you know, Sang Hu Yang. Um, and, it reminds me also of early U.S. history, where you have these sort of Jeffersonian anti-federalists who are in the role of these kind of Han literati uh, fighting against you know, uh, <laughs> your Alexander Hamiltons. <laughs> very, very interesting parallels, I thought. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up the U.S. history. Again, my point is not that there's something essentialist about China, but rather that these kind of debates, these controversies over redefining the relationship between the state and the market and the degree to which the state is an active participant in the market are recurring debates that happen in different contexts. In the book, I also delve into the Second World War, which is, of course, another um, economic reference that uh, suddenly became extremely timely during COVID, um, where everybody started talking about the war economy. Um, But in that context, you also um, have the question of how how do we redefine the relationships between the state and the market under the premises of war? And then after the war, how do you go back from a more or less um, planned war economy to um, a, 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 a more market-based economy? In that context, you also have an opposition of people who are arguing for an activist state and people who are arguing for a very sudden withdrawal of the state and adhering to an ideal of a as strict as possible separation between state and market. All right. So we, before we get into how the reformers of the 80s sought to liberalize the price system, let's talk about how the central planners set prices during the Mao years. I mean, price setting under Mao didn't actually rely on the kind of state market participation that we were talking about. You, it's, it's actually just straight up command economics, a very different situation. So what was the mechanism, if you had to describe it succinctly? How did prices get set during Mao's time? Yeah, um, I mean, we still have a hierarchy of importance um, in terms of the price setting mechanisms. So the most essential goods would be, in terms of consumption and production, would be in tier one and would be set by the highest up authorities and would also be controlled most tightly by the planning authorities. And then you have several other tiers below that um, tier one, um, where you have lower level um administrative entities setting the prices and for the lowest level it's still a publicly determined i mean state set price if you want so but there's somewhat more leeway for at least i mean that changes over time and so on but there's somewhat more leeway for a peripheral emergence of of markets now it's important to remember that the prices during the mao era were set in a way not to 
incentivize individual production units, but rather to redistribute across the system, most prominently redistribute um, from the countryside to the urban industrial economy, which has been called squeezing the peasants, um, basically through the so-called price scissors, where the countryside would have to deliver quotas of agricultural goods at a price that was set systematically below production costs, or at least below what below any kind of notion of value. Whereas um, reversely, um, in particular, urban consumption goods were priced consciously above any notion of production costs or, or, or values, so that you had a form of planned unequal exchange where right. every hour of work of a peasant would exchange against, uh, let's say, I mean, I'm making this number up, but let's say only 45 minutes of work of an urban worker, so that um, you always have a redistribution from the countryside to to the urban industrial economy, which was meant um, to finance um, the industrialization project. At the same time, you also have a redistribution across industrial sectors and you have the prices of the most upstream, most essential production goods um, set in a way that they tend to be below um, cost in order to actually subsidize the building up of industries that are further downstream, whereas at the same time, the um, goods that were considered luxury goods at the time, such as bicycles, wristwatches, radios, and so on, were priced above cost. Now, this had the, the function that I just illustrated in relation to the countryside, but it also had a function where having these goods that were priced very high could be used in a way to extract liquidity from the system, where if people start buying um, quote-unquote luxury goods that are very expensive, then... Bicycles um, and watches. Yeah, then they would be giving up a certain part of their liquidity. So that was a way to extract liquidity and overcome the problem of price pressures that is to some extent inherent in, in attempts at very fast industrialization. Right. So many economists uh, were struggled against during the Cultural Revolution. What was the state of the the discipline of economics in China at the time of Mao's death? I mean, you talk about this sense among Chinese economists of a need to, you know, to to, to sort of take makeup classes, right? Actually, just as as a reference that I only mentioned in passing in the book, but that I think is quite interesting, um, the first American delegation of economists to China after the Nixon visit was a delegation of um, radical economists. And I've uh, also written a <laughs> right. paper on that. And, um, and, and they were touring China and were also meeting some economists, but were quite shocked by how empty and inactive the research institutes were at the time, which of course has to do with the fact that economics as a discipline was more or less cancelled during the Cultural Revolution. The most prominent and important economists were sent to May 4th schools or sent to the countryside for manual labor. Some were imprisoned, like Wu Jun and so on. So that the institutions of economic research were really shattered and that um, the beginning of reform, when economics was allegedly put in command, as opposed to politics in command during the Cultural Revolution, there was not much economics as an academic discipline to speak of. So you had that contradiction of economics being elevated um, to the most important 
academic discipline while being institutionally and practically quite non-existent to begin with. Of course, it was very quickly re-established. People returned to the institutes. Um, many people also continued to be active during the years of the Cultural Revolution under the Rada, um, so they could very quickly publish things that they had written in the years before. However, it well, was they really... weren't slopping pigs or whatever. <laughs> yes, yeah. So the question of how productive yeah. one can be is is an interesting one. <laughs> um, right. But yeah. So. You know what? What I find really interesting is, like, as you say, the kind of conventional wisdom on the early '80s is that you had these reformers pitted against these conservatives, people who didn't want to change. Them. I mean, people think of you know uh, of, of of Hua Wolfong and the whatevers and all that stuff. But I think in your interviews with the actual economists and the officials, you find that the sense of an urgency of a need for reform was pretty universal. Uh, it wasn't just the result of ideological battles or theoretical insights, but it was just just plain old imperative. You know, it was just a matter not of whether to Im- implement reforms, but how to, what kinds of reforms to implement. And I think people who later on become kind of tagged as hardliners in the in the 90s, like Deng Liqin and, and, and Chen Yun, they were actually quite forceful proponents of reform in the late 70s and the early 80s. Uh, can you talk about this consensus on the need for reform and and how how complete was it? You know, was, was there anyone left who was just sort of st- standing astride this and saying, no, we could stay with central planning completely? I mean, I, of course, interviewed the reform economists, right? So yeah, that's true. There, there that's is, true. So I, I do skewed. have a biased sample. But um, within this camp of reform economists, there were very different views about how to reform. And there was consensus about the need for reform. And I think this has quite tangible material reasons, which lie in the fact that, of course, by the late 1970s, the ideal of late Maoism and the whole approach that came with that was long dead and over. Hua Guofeng had attempted another Soviet-style big push industrialization with a 10-year plan that was this time meant to be financed with petroleum exports and um, fueled with imports of foreign technology. However, the projections of um, petroleum that had been made turned out to not be realistic, so that this idea of pushing ahead with foreign technology would only have been possible at the cost of dangerous foreign indebtedness, which then pretty quickly led that program to run out of steam. So that you were in a situation where two major programs had just like really arrived in a in a major deadlock and the question of what to do now and what to do next was one that was really really on the top of the agenda and that was i think a material imperative and on top of it i mean you had a situation where peasants in south china started to flee to quote unquote imperialist capitalist hong kong because they hoped for a better um, life there whereas the ambition of the revolution had of course always been more than only material progress, but material progress and um, improving the lives of the masses has always been part of that ambition of the revolution. So someone like Chen Yun at, at the CCP work conference of 1978, so in the pivotal year of 1978, um, is quoted to have said that if we don't resolve the problem of um, clothing and feeding 
the still large numbers of peasants that are underfed and not well clothed, we will face a situation where local cadres will be leading the peasants to the gates of the cities, demanding food and better living conditions. So there's a, right. a, a clear sense of urgency, not only in an abstract sense of wanting more economic growth or or, or higher GDP numbers, something like that, but a, a very but just clear to put sense clothes of, on of, people's backs. Yeah. yeah yes, yeah. and so many reform economists have been saying that for them. The, the question of reform in the very early years was really a question of, of clothing and feeding the people in more satisfactory way. This is not to right. say that there, haven't, there hasn't been, I mean, of course, there was a dreadful and horrifying famine under Mao, no question about that. But it's not to say that there was not some degree of progress under Mao, right? I mean, of course, there was progress in basic industrialization, education, health, and so on, as one of the World Bank officials in one of the interviews was saying, um, you did see poverty in China, but the kind of poverty that you saw in China in the um, late 70s, early 80s, unlike India, was not the kind of poverty that wouldn't let you sleep in your hotel at night, meaning that it right. was it was poverty, but it was not the kind of ugly poverty um, written with diseases and, and appalling sanitary conditions and, 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 and all of that. So I, I think anyone that's even glancingly familiar with China's early steps toward reform is aware of the household responsibility system, of this idea of disposal of surplus, this basic principle. It was pioneered in rural areas in, in Anhui province and in Sichuan. Perhaps, though, I think it would be a good reminder just to very, very briefly remind people of how that worked and, and how key that was. Yeah, so I think the household responsibility system is important in setting a pattern for reform in several ways. First of all, you mentioned Anhui province and, and the pioneering um, actions there. There were, of course, also other sites of um, early experimentation. These early experimentations really happened in counties that were not the major grain producers for the national system. So often they were even net receivers of, um, of grain and agricultural transfers. Hmm. So that they were not essential or heavy, if you want to use that language, um, for the national grain system. So some of the people who were involved in the early agricultural reforms were telling me that to some degree, letting these experiments happen was actually a step of giving up on trying to tell them what to do and hoping that <laughs> maybe that would, would improve the situation for some of the poorest communities. Now... What happened was basically that um, the responsibility for production was moved from the production team to the households, where the idea was that um, as long as every household would deliver their share in the quota, they could, beyond producing their share in the quota, produce for the market and uh, produce whatever and however much they want and sell it at market prices. Now, this resulted in the so-called dual-track system where households were producing for the plan, um, that is, producing their share in the quota, while at the same time producing um, for the market. For the market as well. So it very much closely parallels what, what ends up happening during you know the actual implementation of, of broader reforms. Um, a theme that you sound again and again in your book is how the CCP leadership really understood just all too well 
how hyperinflation in the waning years of the KMT rule had just eroded KMT legitimacy, had just lost the KMT popular support. Uh, and even the very ardent liberalizers like Charles Ziyang, uh, they feared inflation as a result of price liberalization. So um, how, how, how deep was this fear? I mean, did this run pretty consistently through this group of reformers or were there people who were sort of fearless in the face of face of inflation or were willing to accept uh, pretty substantial inflation as uh, the price to pay for price liberalization? There was a camp of economists emerging that thought that um, uh, a temporary inflation would be a price to pay um, for transitioning to the market. But I think on the part of officials and the leadership in particular, there was an acute awareness of the importance of prices for political and social stability and not only the general price level. When we talk about inflation, we typically think about the movement of some consumer price index that would take a basket of commodities and look how this the, the prices of this basket as a whole are moving, right? But there was also right. an acute awareness around the um, changes in prices of so-called called heavy goods. And um, right. the, the important goods could be quite small goods indeed. So, for example, there was a debate around changing the price for matches. Now, if we think about matches, we think like, oh, this is an extremely cheap good and one that we really don't care much whether the price of matches goes up 10 or 20 percent or not, right? But we have to remember right. that in China in the early 80s, people were still um, predominantly cooking and um, also in, in the countryside, of course, heating um, with um, with wood stoves and, and fire. So matches was an absolute staple in their consumption basket. And given just wow. how poor the country still was, the price of matches would actually possibly arouse quite a lot of resistance. So again, to illustrate, to quote from one of the um, World Bank notes, there is there is this observation by one, one of the people um, after a, a number of days of meetings and discussions where the person is noting down the communist dictator who cannot change the price of matches by two cents. Um, wow. So, <laughs> so there is an, 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 an acute awareness of, of the, um, the importance of price changes for people's lives and also of the psychology of, of price changes. Speaking of, of World Bank um, notes and uh, the taking of notes, there, there were some uh, really important meetings, you know, the Morganshan World Bank meetings later on, the, the Morganshan Youth Conference, which was all Chinese people, but also this Yangtze cruise on this uh, this ship, the, the Bashan, in the, all taking place in the early 80s. Your book has these fantastically detailed accounts uh, that come from the participants, both the, the foreigners and the Chinese. Uh, what strikes me in this, and again, that's a theme in your book, is it seems like the, the Chinese aren't the ones who are ideologically rigid here. That that the, the ones who seem to be ideologically rigid often are these Euro Eastern European emigres, you know, your Bruce and your Struinsky and your Kenda and, and people like that, who were they're all almost uniformly convinced that socialism is unreformable. And which prompts the question about what the hell are you doing there then? And also just so can you can you contrast the the, the Eastern Europeans and the Chinese? Because First of all, they come off very differently in your book, in your account, than they do, say, in Julian Gwertz's. But interesting, though. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, 
so I actually managed to meet the last uh, Eastern European participant of that um, conference who was still alive during my, my interviews. And I met him in Paris. And um, ironically, when he showed up, he was wearing the exact same outfit as he was wearing in the picture. Yeah, that is in noted the that in the book. That's um, very funny. Why am I telling that uh, anecdote in response to your question? He Because his the, economic life didn't improve that much. <laughs> um, no, I mean, his, his economic life did improve. He did emphasize that this, this, uh, this trip to China was one of the most well-paid engagements he had ever undertaken. Um, but uh, um, more importantly and more to the point, um, he preserved that outfit and he illustrated to me something that hadn't been clear to me before that interview, which was that from his perspective, going to China was an extremely bold thing to do and which has to do probably with the relatively high honorarium by by standards of the time and, and his own um, income standards um, for the reason that um, he thought that if he had returned to his native Hungary, he would have been arrested pretty much um, upon entering the country. So there is a Chinese communist government that is inviting people who are emigres and who perceive themselves as um dissidents in the sense that right. they would be arrested upon return um, to their own co socialist country. So this is an extremely bold move. From the perspective of the Eastern Europeans, the reform attempts up to that date had basically been a series of failure. This is in their own description their of sense, what yeah, had happened. Yeah. Um, so what they were trying to do was to come up with one big blueprint, one holistic solution that would change the system as a whole um, and would thereby achieve um, the creation of a market economy. So they had arrived at um, a logic of package reform, as it's so were, um, that, that tried to solve the problems that they hadn't solved and what they thought of as gradualist reforms in the previous decades in pretty much one big goal. In contrast, the Chinese counterparts were again and again emphasizing that they were facing enormous macroeconomic pressures, that they even had difficulties adjusting the relative price between synthetic and cotton textiles, that they were trying to enliven the system by introducing some flexibility at the margins and so on. So you have this contrast between the Eastern Europeans who are trying to find a holistic solution for system reform in the sense of change of the whole system based on one big blueprint and these um, Chinese economists and officials who go on and on and on on all these detailed questions of what seem rather small steps of reform. Then after the Morgan Shan World Bank um, conference, the World Bank delegation actually toured China and they also went to the countryside and the Eastern European emigres were entirely surprised by seeing how successful the agricultural reforms were. So wh whereas they had constantly advised against the dual track system during that conference, um, they were completely struck by seeing what they thought of as major progress in reform of a kind that they had not expected based on the evaluation of the experiences in their own countries. So that right. kind of um, resulted in, in a situation where it wasn't 
quite clear anymore what to take away from from the Eastern European advice. How point out that that it was mostly there were Anglo-American advisors too. I mean, Alec Karen Cross, who's British, and John Kenneth Galbraith, who's American. They they were actually, you know quite supportive of the gradualist approach as they had been in in their own experience transitioning the war economies right so uh that that it's it's, it's the contrast though with eastern europeans is is striking yes yeah, so um just to be sure john Ken- Con- kenneth galbraith was in china um actually the second delegation of economists after the nixon visit after the one of radical um economists that i had mentioned before his writings were around in the 80s he himself did not make any prominent visits that showed up in the debates, but there were references being made to his writings. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In terms of Alec Cairngross, he he participated at, in the Bashanlun um, boat conference, and um, he was someone who was uh, involved in the post-war transition in the UK, which was in contrast to the West German transition and in contrast to the American transition, a very gradualist kind of transition where the idea was that one would only liberalize prices for which um, supply was no longer falling vastly um, short of demand. Um, so right. under the Labour government um, in, in, in the 40s and early 50s, the approach of transition was in some sense gradualist in a somewhat similar way to um, what the Chinese have been doing in the 1980s. On top of it, um, Cairncross was pointing out that that it would be very dangerous to implement rapid reforms. Um, and that uh, and this was, by the way, also a point that was made by um, James Tobin, that um, China's banking system was not developed enough to replace direct price controls with indirect um, market economic macroeconomic um, controls. Well, let's get into this. I think it's a very fascinating part of your book about generations and how the different actors in China's early days of reform, uh, when they were born and their formative experiences seem to correlate so much with their position on uh, the question of how to reform. Um, what was the basis for this alliance that seems to have formed between young intellectuals who had been sent down to the countryside and older officials who had maybe, you know, been uh active in the revolution itself and uh, had been in the base areas. Uh, This group was so instrumental in championing gradualism and and in China's escape from shock therapy. And and who were they up against and what was sort of the the, the formative experiences and the demographics of those those people? Yeah, um, at that point, I would actually like to give a shout out to Liu Hong, um, whose book from 2010, which has only been published in Chinese so far, I think has been an incredibly valuable source, both for Julian as well as for my own book. So I I just want to make sure that people are also aware of uh, Liu Hong's uh, work. She has done a tremendous amount of, um, of, of research in chronicling the stories of the economists of the 1980s. And I think, um, it's probably, not wrong to say that both Julian and I would have um, struggled uh, incredibly without um, being able to rely on on the uh, enormous groundwork that she has done, um, and she also introduces this concept of of generations. So I think there is a certain pattern that emerges. Of course, we have to be careful in like uh, in 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 overstretching these generational divides sure. and and creating a, a sense of 
monolithic generations. But I think there is a certain pattern, which is that the revolutionary generation of leaders who have gone through the struggles of economic warfare and who were directly or indirectly involved in the post-liberation economic reconstruction project and the ways in which um, the communist party and state um, then used the market as a tool. So that, that generation of leaders and um, the young generation of intellectuals that really emerged um, through the agricultural reforms who were um, so-called sent down youth during the Cultural Revolution and had often spent from their teens to their mid-twenties in very poor villages and were as such intimately familiar with the living conditions and the political economy of agriculture in China. And when they returned to the cities and in particular returned to Beijing for the for those who um, who then came to join the the Nongfazu, the the agricultural development group, mm-hmm. they did not forget about the countryside when they returned. Right. Sure. Similarly, yeah. for that first generation of of leaders, the countryside, of course, was incredibly important already in the revolutionary struggles. So there is a certain connection via the dedication to the countryside and the political economy of agriculture and the question of agricultural reform. On the other hand, there are what by the 80s would have been more or less middle-aged, often economists, as in trained as economists, who were trained in the 50s and 60s and were often trained in a relatively orthodox kind of Soviet Soviet um, type of economics, who then formed an alliance with young researchers who often had a background in engineering and the sciences and who were focused on questions of system design, cybernetics and all of that. So you had that alliance of formerly orthodox Soviet economists who turned um, more or less neoclassical, where there is quite some intellectual overlap between certain kinds of Soviet economics and neoclassical economics together with these young scientists who were acquiring the latest techniques in, in maths and computer science and so on. So these are the battle lines that are drawn. These are the forces that are arrayed against each other. And it's this battle of 1986, which you detail in Chapter 7 of your book, which I think is one of the big moments of drama. Um, you, 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 you've talked a little bit about the forces that are arrayed against one, one another, you know, people arguing still for preserving the dual track system on the one hand to cross the river by feeling for stones and others that were, you know, for the big bang package reforms, you know, people like, uh, you know, Lian. The, the character though, that emerges as the most difficult to read. And this is not just in your account, but in all these other accounts is it's, it's hard to get a sense of Zhao Ziyang, who was at the time the premier how does he, what role does he play in these debates? It's because it's very contested. The accounts in his own Prisoner of the State, they just do not square with what many of your interview subjects say. And uh, those interview subjects don't necessarily agree with one another either. How do you approach this contested legacy and how do you come out of it? How, what's your read on this mysterious figure of Charles Young? Um, yeah, so I think that Zhao Ziyang is an incredibly important figure of the 1980s and is probably a somewhat conflicted figure. I mean, he seems to be taking these questions extraordinarily seriously. But as one of, of one of his uh, his uh, secretaries was saying in an 
interview, he he would be approaching these discussions in the fashion um, in which he had later experienced um, graduate seminars um, at American at, 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 at an American <laughs> university. So there was always an openness to discuss both sides and to very seriously consider both sides and to really engage um, with the arguments that both sides were presenting. And I think this was in some sense his strength and his weakness in that it probably would have been very hard to carve out that very distinct approach to reform that emerged in China without um, a leader that had that open-mindedness. At the same time, this resulted in him being torn between different approaches again and again, and also kind of moving from one side to the other, and thereby creating a, a, a certain tension. And then, of course, in terms of the interpretation of his legacy, um, I think this can be hardly disentangled from um, from the political interests of those who, who themselves were involved in the 1980s. So that makes it even more complicated to to um, to understand what exactly happened. And I think... But be more I'm, explicit about that. What do you mean exactly? What are these battling political interests? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Zhao Ziyang Wenji, which is an incredibly um, important and incredibly useful resource, and I'm using it a lot in the book... At the same time, it's quite striking how some of the people who clearly were important in the 1980s, by all accounts, including those who were battling with them, um, hardly figure in the Zhao Ziyang Wenji. So clearly the, the documents that would have been attributed to them didn't make it in there. I don't know what the editorial process was. It was. It might be that they were just not part of the com conversation and therefore their documents didn't make it into this volume. But it, it does, um, of course present a picture that is not entirely balanced and that it privileges certain kinds of interactions um, over others. So that, that is what I mean when I say that um, the, the history of the 1980s is still, in some sense, the, the ways in which it is written is still a reflection of who is talking to whom and who has access to what kind of publishers and all of that. Speaking of who talking to who, that might have been uh, still too obscure, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 figure that doesn't get get talked about a lot in in your study uh, is the, the person who was general secretary at the time up until his removal in 1987, um, and that's of course Hu Yaobang. Where did he fit into the debate? I mean, where did he stand, and and why is he kind of absent? I mean, you know, there. if you look at the index of your book, he's mentioned on six pages maybe, but in passing, there's never really a discussion of how he uh, how he felt about all this. Yeah, um, I think that Hu Yaobang was uh, really important in bringing up this young generation of um, reform intellectuals. And I am writing about this in the book, maybe not extensively as I should have, but Already in 1971, so already before the Nixon visit, who is being recollected as someone who had an open door and um, who invited young people in his vicinity to join a discussion over the political economy of agriculture, the questions of reform, what kind of approach was needed. And in particular, Chen Yitzhi, who of course em emerges as the director of the Tigaisu, of the um, economic System Reform Research Institute, he basically does rise to influence because of Hu Yaobang's support, right? So I he, see, I see. 
he meets Huyaobang still during the Cultural Revolution. Um, Chen Yitzhu had been um, basically um, sent to the countryside after he wrote a letter to uh, to Mao Zedong, um, criticizing um, 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 that there was a lack of of, of democracy. Um, and then it's, uh, um, spends uh, uh, several years in, in Henan and it gets engaged in all sorts of agricultural education projects and even becomes a local cadre. And s still during the Cultural Revolution is someone who is very actively thinking about how the political economy of agriculture could be reorganized. And in that context... Yeah, so I mean, Chinese, he's kind of the prototype of that one faction you're talking about, uh, that you know, he is very much uh, arguing for preserving dual track for now, gradualism, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which comes up again. Um, uh, yeah, I love so that in expression. Fact, in fact, uh, Hu Yaobang um, is the one who um, calls Chen Yitzhi back to Beijing in 1978 ah, okay, and gives him okay, a position okay. at the um, at the um, Chinese Academy of um, Social Sciences in the Agricultural Institute and basically supports him in his initiatives to start these survey works of the um, initial experiments um, in the countryside. Now, why does Hu Yaobang not play as prominent a role in the subsequent chapters of the book. It's not to make him disappear. That is not at all the intention. No, no, but my no. focus is um, really on the day-to-day -day questions of economic reform. And the responsibility for these day-to-day -day questions of economic reform were primarily in the hands of, of Zhao Ziyang in his position right. as, as pr premier. So when Zhao Ziyang then later on himself becomes general secretary, um, he actually also loses the direct control over the day-to-day decision-making or the day-to-day -day discussions, most high-level discussions on, on economic reform. So it's it's really because of the the position that he occupies, that he's less directly involved in these specific discussions over how to design the next step in economic reform compared to Zhao Ziyang. But he has been incredibly critical in nourishing the rural development group and as such nourishing really that third force, if you want so, in China's reform um, discourse of the 1980s. Mm. Fair, fair enough. So, I mean, we'll fast forward a little bit through the, the debate of 1986. I mean, the upshot is that um, the, the protagonists, if you will, of, of in, in your book prevail in 86. But, uh, and, and there's all sorts of really interesting reasons why. And you go through the different arguments that they make and the different sort of uh, fact-finding missions. You know, they go to Yugoslavia and uh, they, you know, at the behest of, of Soros to Hungary and to Yugoslavia. And uh, I think they come back and they cable back very skeptical about the possibility of shock. And um, they also, you know, learn, I think, more details about what happened really at the Earhart miracle. Uh, but we'll leave all those details for now and move to the next big battle, which is 1988. And, and the two competing theories about the root causes for inflation in 87 and especially 1988, it seems like both sides in this are guilt guilty of some motivated reasoning. I mean, they both blame inflation on the other side's policy prescriptions, you know, in the very much the same way that they, they divided in 86. So this is really consequential here. I mean, what it matters because, of course, inflation seems to have been such an important factor in bringing people into the streets. So, but Isabella, maybe you can help me understand this better because it's something that's always kind of nagged me about 88. Now, the students and intellectuals who supported uh, package reforms 
um, you know, they were very they were very much in the full steam ahead camp. They don't seem to have wrestled though with the irony that inflation, which I think many people would attribute to their specific policy orientation, to their support of you know price liberalization, um, they were able to use inflation as a mobilizational tool for the movement to bring people into the street when the very policies they had kind of supported, you know hit the gas, don't hit the brakes, hit the gas, plow through the barrier. That was what was giving rise to inflation. Now, of course, there's the other side, which says, no, that's not what was giving rise to inflation. But how do they square this? How You've talked to many participants in 89. What, 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 how do they talk about this? Yeah, um, I think it's useful to very briefly back up and talk about 86, because I think in 86, um, it still was some sort of economics debate over evaluating different forms of reform. And the dual track people basically warning that if one was to liberalize the prices of essential upstream producer goods too quickly, that this would unleash cost push inflation, very much of the same kind as we are talking about these days with commodity prices going through the roof. So in 1988, I think the situation was very different from 86 in the sense that in 88, reform itself had reached a certain impasse and the situation started to become quite chaotic. And also Deng Xiaoping himself took initiative, who, unlike Zhao Ziyang, I think was not the kind of person who could be convinced by economic arguments once he had set his mind um, to a certain action. So in 1988, it became clear that reform, unlike the first years had suggested, did not stand to benefit everybody, but that some would be not only benefiting more, but that some would also actually be losing from reform. And that um, right. the, the gradual dismantling of the communes did not only have benefits for, for the agricultural population, was a first time that urban-rural incomes were actually diverging. So a pretty deep tension was building up in the system where the downsides of marketization and the social harshness of marketization started to become apparent. Right. So in that context, the so-called conservatives were starting to become more virulent, arguing against reform. Um, and Deng Xiaoping, I think, to some extent, saw his back against the wall and kind of tried to rescue the legacy of reform, trying to push ahead in a context that was already inflationary. And that initial inflationary context was probably due to the dual track system, because if you think about it and you have a situation where certain goods are in very short supply and they are being traded on the market at market prices, then they would have very high prices. And these prices right. were much, much, much higher than the planned prices. So a certain inflationary tendency was built into the dual track system. The argument of the dual track reformers was that it was less severe than letting go of all prices because the shortages don't go away. So if you just say, okay, it's all free prices, then inflation would be worse than if you have the dual track um, system where part of the prices were state controlled. But nevertheless, there was an inflationary um, tendency that was not least unleashed by certain liberalizations of consumer goods that seemed minor but turned out quite important, such as certain types of alcohol, cigarettes, and so on. Right, right. So in that context, um, Deng Xiaoping takes the initiative and says we have to crush through the gate of price reform. Now, 
those who were in favor of package reform actually thought that you first had to have austerity and macroeconomic restraint before you could do Big Bang, right? Right. Those who were against Big Bang thought you shouldn't do Big Bang whether you did austerity or not. And now Deng Xiaoping takes the initiative towards a Big Bang in a situation where even the, the, the Big Bang supporters were thinking you would have to have first austerity, right? And I think this irrash, I mean, quote unquote irrationality has to be seen in this, in the context of this already enormous tensions that we're, we're building up within the system. So to, to answer your question more directly about, um, 1989, I'm not so sure if it's so straightforward that the protesters were unanimously in favor of package reform. I think we have to remember that rapid price rises in situations of political, I mean, deep political tensions have unleashed very far-reaching protests in all sorts of contexts, right? I mean, most prominently in history, of course, the French Revolution, um, but also the Arab Spring was not least triggered by the rapid rise of of the price of bread, the, um, the, the yellow vests in France, which of course ended up being much less, uh, consequential than the Arab Spring were triggered by the increase of, of, gas of, of prices, the price yeah. for, for gas, right? Um, so this pattern of price rises that hit people hard because they affect their consumption patterns very directly, unleashing or being a trigger for much bigger protests, I think is one that is not at all unique to China. And that I think is, it's of course, I'm not arguing 1989 is just another bread riot. But I think if you ask me about the relationship between them foregrounding inflation, and at the same time, I'm also agreeing with the need to, to push ahead, then I think part of it is this, is this trigger effect of rises in important prices that have the potential to unleash movement. So my point is that it's, I don't think that the protesters had some kind of scheme where they were using inflation um, in order to, to protest, but then actually wanted something that was inconsistent with this, but rather that the inflationary dynamic and then... The, I'm not saying it was deliberate, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just, just trying to... It was sort of... <laughs> to, to be... What's interesting is that you could make the same argument with corruption, that, that the, the inherent price disparities in a dual-track system were, you know, it, it laid the groundwork for, I mean, it was too inviting that corruption was inevitable there. And so also, um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people w- would say that it was these gradualists and in their insistence on, on maintaining the dual-track system that made it possible for these levels of corruption that were then, you know, used instrumentally you know, to to bring people into the streets and to mobilize people by by the students and their intellectual backers. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think that, just to be sure, I think uh, that corruption is extremely important and um, that it probably was underestimated by the dual-track people um, just how explosionary the corruption tendencies that were unleashed yeah, by that system yeah. were. For sure, for sure. I want to ask you a question sort of going forward here. I mean, so Guo Shuqing, uh, who now heads the CBRC, the China Banking Regulatory Commission, and uh, Lo Jiwei, who was the Minister of Finance from, I think, like, uh, 
up until 2016, I think it was during the first term of Xi Jinping, they, these guys were all back then advocates of package reform. Like we said, we've, we've seen sort of the winners uh, were the ones after 89 who were the ones on the side of package reform. Uh, they all ended up in very powerful positions. Uh, what, what do they say now? I mean, looking back on the battles of the 80s, is there some consensus maybe that, hey, you know, Li Ning and, and Chen Yizhi were actually right? They're not ardent market liberalizers anymore, necessarily. Yeah, um, I think we have to distinguish between their positions today and their interpretation of the 1980s. I think as regards the 1980s, Luo Ziwei has possibly been the most outspoken one um, who gave a speech in 2017, where he basically argued again that the problem in 88 was not um, the attempt to pursue very comprehensive and fast price reforms, but that the problem was basically that not enough macroeconomic restra- restraint was in place, which right. is exactly the argument that's in of, your book. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Of 1988. At the same time, I think we have to also see that um, Luo Jiwei or Guo Shuqing in 2021 is not the same person as as uh, as in the 1980s. Sure. I mean, even in in the American context, if someone would have told you that um, that uh, Joe Biden would be the one who uh, promotes uh, large-scale public investments like some three years ago. (laughs) Um, One probably wouldn't really have believed it, right? So I think we have to see that in China as elsewhere, politicians who are in the system for so long are also being shaped by the system in their own attitudes. So did the divisions between the package reform camp and the gradualists did they endure and did they manifest themselves later in the factional divisions that we saw in later decades, like in, in the aughts, for example? Because it's tempting for me to draw a line from the, you know, package reform guys to the Shanghai clique, you know, in, during the, the era of Jiang Zemin and, and Zhu Rongji. Um, because they, they, they are still the sort of, sort of same, very neoliberal, for, pro free trade, pro, uh, coastal development, pro F, FDI, uh, and, uh, you know, very, yeah, I mean, I think that, and then the gradualists, do they kind of evolve into the, the kind of the, the, I mean, I don't, I don't like using the shorthand necessarily, but the, the communist youth league faction, people who are more concerned with rural development still, more concerned with the growing, you know, un, unbalanced economic growth and the inequalities. Is there, is there a line to be drawn there? Yeah, I'm not sure about the direct mapping, but I think as a general principle, it is the case that the struggle between two different ways of thinking about reform continues throughout the 90s, even though the most of the dual track reformers of the 80s, of course, disappear from the scene since in 1989, they stand loyal with Zhao Ziyang and they actually issue a statement arguing for the need for dialogue between the protesters and the leadership um, and thereby um, supporting the demand of the protesters. And therefore, most of them actually ended up in, in exile, if not in prison, or or basically withdrew into private business or in, into relatively insignificant positions. So it is not a continuity in terms of the precise persons, but in terms of the struggles that um, evolve in the 90s, I think there is a continuity. And I think that to some degree, that is inherent in the dual track system, because the dual track by its very nature, leaves open the possibility of more radical reforms, as well as the possibility of strengthening um, the, the, the state side of the system, 
right? And in the 1990s, the big struggle is, of course, the struggle over um, state-owned enterprise reform. And in that context, um, some, someone like Wu Jinglian does make another appearance. Um, so in 1995, Jiang Zemin switches to the whole slogan of doing a good job with the whole state-owned sector should now be grasping the big and letting go the small, which is then the big slogan. Very light and heavy again. Yeah, which is completely heavy and light. I mean, it's it's completely heavy and light, right, right, but it right. is pushing the boundary of reform um, quite drastically and saying we have to not only have all state-owned enterprises grow into the market, but rather we have to give up on the small state-owned enterprises, right? Which is extending the same right, logic, right. but in a in a renewed radical step. Now, in that context, a new struggle emerged over how much privatization, how much of GDP should be under state ownership and all of that. And there were there was, for example, the 10,000 Chinese Characters Manifesto, the one yen shu, um, which yeah. um, which um, articulated the position that um, having a quote unquote socialist state without having significant or majority state ownership would be a contradiction and would be betraying socialism. And in this context, in 1997, Wu Jinglian is again um, um, mobilized and is uh, leads a commission under the Development Research Center. Um, under the state council, um, presenting counter arguments why um, why state-owned right. enterprise reform has to continue. So in that sense, these struggles continue, and they do involve some yeah, of the same yeah. people. But I think it's the continuation of a sort of of two logics that are ingrained in in the process of reform and that are reemerging again and again at the different junctures. And I think that basically we can think of the Big Bang site in the 90s and 2000s as um, the site that is, and to some extent until today, the site that is calling for completing reforms. So if you think that reforms are not complete, then you think that this mixed system that has emerged is not a system that, that can can continue in, in that form, but instead that it has, that marketization has to be completed, meaning working towards the separation of state and market in, in all its facets and finance and so on. Whereas if you think that state market participation in itself is a mode of governance, then there's, of course, a need to continue reform and to redefine the system and so on. But there's no such thing as completing the reform for good and separating the, right. the state and the market for good in some sense. So that continues to be, I think, a, a, a live tension in, in in Chinese thinking. But I think what you argue in your book well is is that China did escape, if if not just shock therapy, it also escaped binary thinking on uh, on shock therapy, on you know the the kind of thinking that says free market good, planned economy bad. But this kind of binary thinking still seems to have a grip on many people who study China, where there's this instinct that so many of us have, and I, I'm sure I heard, I've been guilty of it too, uh, where we just hear, well, this guy is a champion of free markets, of, of market liberalization, therefore I root for him or her, and uh, it's too often him. But uh, then the other side, you know, oh, this person uh, is, is kind of in the, you know, 
kind of camp, and then therefore they're bad. You know, any anyone who's defending state-owned enterprises or anything like that, oh, they're bad. What 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 do you say to people who still frame things this way? Because I, I feel like that's a pernicious tendency still. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for this question. I would like to insert one comment on the 90s and then, then get to that. So just to be sure, my point is not that in the 1990s and 2000s, there weren't um, very wide-ranging and very um, harsh policies that are chronicled, for example, by Tinkwan Lee's work, the dismantling of the rust belt and all of that. So the point is not that there haven't been very wide-ranging, very harsh social policies and, um, and economic liberalizations. But my point is that there hasn't been shock therapy in the ways in which I have defined it in the book. Just to, I just wanted to put this out there because this sometimes has uh, caused some confusion. To your broader question of how can we think beyond the binary of free market versus planning, or how are we often caught up in that binary? I think it's quite ironic that on the part of those who have been cheering for free markets, and if you want so neoliberalism, they have often projected free market policies on China's reforms. So from their perspective, um, China's reform success is all a miracle of um, freeing up the market potential. Whereas on the left, right. um, the, those who, 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 who think that um, China has gone too far and that China has become too capitalist, they often ironically arrive at a similar um, conclusion where they then think that China has become neoliberal, which um, they see as a <laughs> critical term, but nevertheless, which basically confirms the idea that it's all been about free marketism, right? So what I'm trying to do with this book is um, to challenge us to see beyond equating neoliberalism with marketization, but to see that marketization can take very different forms and that marketization itself, the process of marketization, the forms of marketization, they're fiercely contested and that China's process of marketization deserves study in its own right um, rather than simply being subsumed under one label, label or another. Isabel, that's just so fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me today. I, I mean, I've said before on this program, let me just close with uh, a couple of thoughts I have about finish, after finishing your book. I've said on this program before that in my own dealings with economists who work on China, I find that there's this spectrum along which they tend to fall, this continuum uh, where on one extreme, and I guess I haven't really met, I mean, this is, a, of course, a straw man, but, you know, there are people who think that China's economy is completely sui generis. These people would say that the concepts that are taught to us in our, our economics courses, they have neither any descriptive nor any prescriptive value when it comes to China. But on the other extreme, you have people who say that China is just no different at all, that it's subject to exactly the same ironclad laws of economics as the rest of the world. So it doesn't matter. I've used this phrase before, whether it's Chile or Chad or China that you're talking about, it's all the same. And uh, I, I feel like having finished this book, I've come away with a much better sense of what actually does make China significantly different uh, so that when I now hear that, you know, hackneyed expression, socialist market economy with Chinese characteristics. I actually know what the socialist part is, what the market part is. And I think most importantly, what the Chinese characteristics are. Uh, so thank you for this wonderful book. I, it was 
I just cannot recommend it more highly. I, I hope that everyone reads it. I'm so glad that it's being talked about so widely, though. Thank you so much uh, for having me. And thank you so much for these great uh, questions. This has been really, really fun discussing these uh, important junctures of the 80s with you. Thank you. Likewise, um, let's get to recommendations. Um, <laughs> um, before we do that, I want to quickly remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like the work we're doing with Seneca and with all the other shows in the Seneca network, the best way to help us out is to subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. It's produced by uh, my colleagues Lucas and Jeremy, and it's just fantastic. P- please subscribe. That really, really helps. These things do cost money. So uh, on to recommendations. Isabella, what do you have for us? So I would like to recommend the 1950 movie Rashomon by Kurosawa, um, which is the story of, um, uh, of, of different perspectives on a murder. And um, in, during, my <laughs> during my interviews and while trying to make sense of the um, fierce struggles, really, amongst reformers in the 1980s, that movie to some extent has been a compass in <laughs> in trying to take um every side uh, seriously and on their own own account. I, I I actually wrote a question in here that I didn't get to. I mean when we were talking about Julian Gwartz's book. I, I mean I felt like it was Rashomon. I mean I actually wrote the the word Rashomon and I thought I wonder if all of our listeners will understand what I mean. But oh my God, how weird that you thought of the same Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it is really yeah, Rashomon. Yeah, it was. It was the very 80s in China is Rashomon. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, it's a completely different perspective, especially the, yeah, the 88. I mean, when when you get to the 88 uh, inflation and, the, and the, the arguments over that, it was people are looking at the same set of facts and drawing such completely different conclusions and you know, telling the facts so differently. Wow, that's f- fantastic. A great recommendation. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that the Rashomon effect came through in the book so that it made you think of that movie. Um, yeah, I mean, if there's two things you need to know before you go in, know what Rashomon is and know what Jenga is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually have one more recommendation, which is... Uh, Oh, great. Yeah, which yeah. Which is the movie, um, the Polish movie Cold War, which is, I think, a oh. really, really um, amazing piece of art, but also just stands out for trying to portray both Paris in that case and Poland um, during the Cold War in, in, I think, a very realistic way, neither demonizing nor romanticizing either side um, of the Cold War. And it's a love story where um, at the end, um, the, 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 the two lovers um, are so torn apart by the Cold War that they don't see another exit but um, suicide. So I think this is an incredibly powerful um, movie that kind of makes one think in the current context. I'm looking at it right now. It looks really good. This is a 2018 film. That's uh, right. Yeah. It was nominated out. for three yeah. Academy Awards, I think. Yeah, I don't know how I missed it, but I'm, do you know if, if it's view, seeable somewhere on one of the uh, like on Sundance? I or, think it's available on you know? Amazon Prime. Oh, fantastic! Great, great, great. I mean, I just really love the realism of it, and I feel that we can learn from um, trying to work towards a realistic um, assessment of both um, sides and in, in the mounting tensions. Great. So mine is not so much a recommendation as a, a signed greeting for cynical listeners who want to get a jump on a show that we're going to be recording in a week. Uh, so it will probably be out at the end of July, still within the month, the correct month of the, the centenary of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, it is about 
uh, the Chinese Communist Party. It's a book called The Chinese Communist Party, A Century in Ten Lives. Uh, and it's, it's edited by, uh, three very eminent, uh, China scholars, including one of them who is going to be our guest, Timothy Cheek. Uh, I, I promise that, uh, at least one of the others will be brought onto the show as a guest soon. I'm talking to you, Klaus. Um, but Timothy Cheek uh, and uh, Elizabeth Perry will be joining us on the show, as well as our very own Jeremy Goldcord, who wrote uh, the chapter on the Naughty Otties, uh, which is totally appropriate if you know Jeremy. Really great book, and uh, I encourage you all to read it so that you'll get a you know better sense of, of what we're talking about when we do the show. Once again, Isabella, what a pleasure. What a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, it was so edifying. This book was... Uh, I. I Thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for inviting me, and how nice to meet you. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Look forward to seeing you at AAS conferences. Yes, Hawaii, we come. <laughs> we can f- yeah, I can't wait. Yes. I'm going to go. Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcord with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.